podcast for people who really fancy a good story. I'm Emily. And I'm Rebecca. And today we have, I would say, quite a sparkly episode for you. Mm. There's a lot of pretty things in the books. (laughs) There's a lot of gemstones. There's a lot of jewels happening. So if you want a nice magpie episode, then you're in the right place. (laughs) Nice. What are you infatuated with this week? I am infatuated with A Marvelous Light by Freya Marsk. Yes. We think. We think. <laughs> I think that looks like Marsk. Cool. Yeah. Just before I like start, I thought I'd just disclaim that I was sent this copy by Black Crow and Tor last year in exchange for a review. I've already posted the review, so this episode isn't part of it, but like you have to be transparent about these things. Yeah. So just letting you know, I sent this for free, but I really love it, which is why I'm talking about it again. <laughs> Exciting. It's so pretty. I really I want to read this. Yes, I think you will. Mm-hmm. Oh, I'm excited to talk about it. Okay, so A Marvelous Light came out 2021, and it's the first book in the Last Binding trilogy, which is going to be a continuous story but each book is going to focus on a different romantic couple. Nice. So this one is about Robert Robin Blythe, a young man who, due to a clerical error, ends up being exposed to a secret society of magicians. Amazing. (laughs) So Marsk says this idea was kind of born from people talking about how in the Harry Potter world the muggle prime minister and the minister of magic must have had like loads of really wild conversations with each other. Okay. But then she was like, there's no way that the two top people in charge would have been the ones having the conversation. Instead, it would have been like a low level liaison who Mm -hmm. would like go between them. So she thought who would be the best person for like a plot to drop into that bureaucratic role. And the answer is obviously someone without magic accidentally. And thus, <laughs> this is the story good was place born. vibes. Have you seen the good place? Yes. Yeah. yeah. True. I hadn't thought of that, but yeah, it is kind of like that. Yeah. So yeah, so that's what happens to Robin, and on his first day, he meets his very frosty colleague Edwin Corsey, and then Robin again, kind of accidentally, um, gets cursed, <laughs> um, and it's up to Edwin to help him break this curse so like Robin can return to normal life and it was all a mistake doesn't matter it's over with and yeah the book flips between both of their points of view but obviously hijinks ensue Mm. um, including but not limited to a trip to a murderous hedge maze an enchanted library magic based games and lots and lots of William Morris wallpaper and of course, there's like the romance between Robin and Edwin, which is like very sweet and has that like grumpy sunshine mm. trope. Because um, like Robin is just like a puppy and Edwin hates people. <laughs> so Love it. it's just so good. The grumpy one and the sunshine one is one of my favourite tropes. Yeah, same. Um, so yeah, you'll like this. <laughs> um, so my first passage is from Robin and Edwin's first meeting on Robin's first day. This passage is from Robin's perspective. I think Edwin's just referred to it as Corsi uh, at this point. And this one is my longest quote, but it's got like their first interaction, Robin's first interaction with magic, and it's also like our introduction to the magic system. Okay. So I just think it's a good quote to like 
start with. Curse his mouth looks lemonish now. You really don't even know what the job is. Robin shrugged uncomfortably. Special affairs, special liaison. Cursey did something with his hands, moving his fingers together and apart. Special, you know. Are you some kind of spy? Robin hazarded. Corsi opened his mouth, closed his mouth, opened it again. Miss Morrissey, the door opened. Mr. Cursey, you... What, said Robin, is your pen doing? There was a long pause. The office door closed again. Robin didn't look up to confirm that Miss Morrissey had prudently kept herself on the other side of it. He was too busy gazing at Cursey's pen, which was standing on one end. No, it was moving, with its nib making swift loops against the uppermost sheet of paper. The date had been written in the top right corner, Monday 14th of September, 1908. The ink, blue, was still drying. As Robin watched, the pen slunk back to the left margin of the paper and hovered there like a footman who was hoping nobody had seen him almost drop the salt cellar. Corsey said, It's a simple enough... and then stopped. Perhaps because he'd realised he was applying the word simple to something that was anything but. Perhaps not. Robin's mind was oddly blank, as it had been sometimes at the end of a particularly fiendish examination, as if he'd scooped out its worthwhile contents with his fingers and smeared them grimly onto the page. The last time he'd felt this way was when he found out that his parents were dead. Instead of surprise, this, an exhausted, wrung-out space. Robin waved his hands between the pen and the ceiling. Nothing. No wires. He didn't even know how wires would have worked to create such a thing, but the action seemed necessary, a last gasp of practicality before acceptance flooded in. He said, with what he could already tell was going to be a pathetic attempt at levity. So when he said special, Corsi was now regarding Robin as though Robin were an unusual species of animal, encountered in the wild and possessing a large mouth full of larger teeth. He looked, in short, as though he were bracing himself to engage in a wrestling match and was wondering why Robin hadn't pounced yet. They stared at each other. The room's weak light caught on the pale tips of Corsi's lashes. He was not a handsome man, but Robin had never been inspected this closely by other men except as a prelude to fucking, and the sheer intimate intensity of it was sending confusing signals through Robin's body. You know, said Robin, I'm beginning to suspect there's been a mistake. How astute of you, said Corsi, still with that lion tamer tension. I might be lacking one or two vital qualifications for this position. Indeed. I suppose your pal Gatling could conjure pigeons from his desk drawer with a snap of his fingers too. No, said Corsey, the syllable drawn out like toffee. This position's still part of the home office. It's not magician's job. I'm the liaison to the chief minister of the magical assembly. Magical. Magician. Magic. Robin glanced at the pen again. It continued to hover, serene. He took a long breath. All right. All right. The humanising note of exasperation was matched by something flaring in Corsi's face. Honestly, you expect me to believe this is the first time you've come across any kind of magic and you're sitting there without so much as, and the best you can muster is all right. The blue eyes searched him again. Is this a joke? Did Reggie put you up to this? 
It seemed late in the day to be asking that question. Robin wanted to laugh, but Corsi hadn't asked it with anything so normal as hope. The light in his face had retreated, as though someone holding a candle up to a glass had taken a few steps backwards. It was the resigned expression of someone on whom jokes were often played, and who knew he was expected to laugh afterwards even if they were more cruel than funny. Robin had seen the candle flicker of this expression at his parents' sumptuous dinner parties, when the person making the joke was most often Lady Blythe herself. It's not a joke, he said firmly. What else do you want me to say? You aren't going to suggest that you might be going mad? I don't feel mad. Robin reached out and touched the pen. He'd expected it to be immovable in the air, but it allowed him to take hold of it and move it around. When released, it floated without urgency back to hover near the margin of the paper. How does it know what you want it to do? It's not sentient, said Corsi. It's an imbuement. A what? Corsi took a deep breath and clasped his hands together. Robin, who had suffered under long-winded tutors at Pembroke, recognised the symptoms and braced himself. Sure enough, the words quickly stopped making sense. Apparently magic was inherently fiddly as Latin grammar and required the same sort of attention to detail even when constructing what Corsi described as a minor object imbuement. The pen, apparently seized with the desire to be helpful, transcribed everything Corsi was saying in a neat, spiky hand. It didn't make any more sense written down. Robin's eye caught on the phrase, like a legal contract, as Corsi was explaining how British magicians use a shorthand of gesture called cradling in order to define the terms of any given spell, including those that rendered an innocent pen capable of darting fussily back and forth across the paper. Does the pen sign the contract itself, said Robin, struggling to stay afloat. This won him another of the suspicious, flat-mouthed looks that meant Corsi thought he was trying to be funny. Show me something else, Robin tried and said. Anything. A corner of Corsi's lip tucked between and drew out of his teeth. He peeled something from the same pocket that had housed the magical pen and glanced over his shoulder as if to reassure himself that the door was closed. Excitement crawled over Robin's scalp. He didn't think Corsi actually meant him any harm. The man was far too prickly. If he'd been trying for charm, Robin might have been worried. What Corsi had pulled from his pocket was a loop of plain brown string, which he wrapped around both of his hands. He then held them about a foot and a half apart, pulling the string taut. Light scratch cradle, said Robin. And then, oh, as the light dawned. Cradling. Yes, now be quiet. The lip did its disappearing act again. Corsi's fair brows drew together. Scratch cradle was an activity for pairs. One person to hold the strings, the other to pinch them and twist them into a new position. Corsi was doing it alone, in a complex pattern forming as he hooked his fingers, moving loops of string around with his thumbs, bore no resemblance to the soldier's bed or the manger or any of the other figures that Robin remembered from playing the game in nursery days. Robin's own hands, resting on the desk, began to feel as though he were holding them over the cracked lid of an ice box. He could almost imagine that his breath was beginning to mist as it did in winter, and that Corsi's was doing the same. It was. The mist became a single dense cloud between them, a white clump the size of a walnut. Corsi's fingers kept moving like supple crochet hooks. After nearly a full minute, something emerged, glittering. Robin had never been the sort to pore over the proceedings of the Royal Society, 
and had never personally applied his eye to a microscope, but he knew what this shape was. The snowflake was only the size of a penny, but the light caught on it, showing up tiny complexities and flashes of colour. It was still growing. Something more than scorn was seeping into Corsi's expression now, like watercolour applied with the very tip of a brush to a wetly swept piece of paper. Concentration. Satisfaction. He kept his eyes on the growing snowflake and plucked at a single part of the tangled web of string with his forefinger, again, again, keeping up a steady rhythm. When the snowflake had reached the size of a small apple, Corsi moved his fingers more quickly and the snowflake sagged and dripped into a puddle of water on Robin's desk. Some sort of reaction seemed expected. Robin didn't know what to say. He felt a pang when the snowflake, so carefully built, had melted. He was quietly, startlingly charmed that for all his curt, practical manner, Corsi had chosen such a pretty kind of magic to show Robin. He wanted to say that it reminded him of a snow painting by the Frenchman Monet, sold just last year at one of his parents' charity auctions, but he felt awkward about it. That was lovely, he said in the end. Can anyone do it, if it's just a matter of making contracts and learning what to do with your hands? No, you're either born with magic or you aren't. Robin nodded in relief. The whole thing was still strange and fascinating and barely credible, but here he was, credulous, and nobody was going to expect him to make some sort of meticulous contract with an intangible force by waving his fingers around, so it seemed like something he could live with. (laughs) (laughs) I love Robin's attitude. Yeah, that's like, that is my first note, is that my favourite thing is that he just is like, well, I've never seen it before, but there it is, all right. (laughs) I'm with it, I get it. (laughs) Yeah, it's like quite refreshing for a character to just like, roll with the magic instead of like constantly be questioning yeah like whoa yeah like he he like asks questions because he's like curious but it's not that he's like trying to disprove it Mm -hmm. which you i feel like you often get in like fantasy books and yeah i just wanted to touch on like the magic system of cradling um which is like obviously creating patterns with your hands just like how you play scratch cradle or i always called it cat's cradle i don't know if you ever played it we didn't really have it do you know what it is though? Yeah, like, like the string with your hands. Yeah, and yeah, yeah. Do the weaving, yeah. Yeah, so like I saw Marsk explain this in an interview, but basically like gesture magic, magic through movements with your hands is obviously like not a new thing, mm. um, but she liked the idea of the string and how you could like train to make the shapes with the string to practice the movements so that you get like the right precision to make the spell. Because mm. this is a world where people have like more magic than others so basically the more power you have the less precise your hand movements need to be right edwin doesn't have a lot of power so he has to use the string for precision and that kind of marks his marks him as inferior and sets him apart as different and that's like a big point of shame for him but robin just finds him amazing because like that's all he knows about magic so i just like love that characterization that's so cool it's like like magic training wheels yeah basically it is um and yeah like i said before i love a magic system that you can actually like visualize and Mm -hmm. that's quite a good example of it yeah i think it's nice as well because i feel like we've had so many epic fantasy series now that intangible magic Mm. like we're kind of used to it now yeah 
so it's nice to have a bit more thought behind it yeah definitely and yeah the magic system also has a focus on contract and on consent but I'm actually going to come back to that later but now I want to move on to one of my favorite things about Edwin um which is that he loves books um because you know hates people loves books and (laughs) don't see how you would relate or be attracted to that at all absolutely not (laughs) um so of course we're treated to a beautiful Edwardian manor library Mm. which is like one of my favorite settings in the book obviously um and yeah this is from Robin's perspective again and it's him seeing the Corsay family library for the first time when he found the library he stopped a few feet inside the door in order to stare He'd been in manor house libraries before, even Thornley Hill had a modest one, and he'd been envisaging something like that, a room stuffy with dust and gloomy with solid last century furnishings, shelves packed with matching sets of untouched leather-bound books. The library at Penhallock House was two storeys high, with a narrow balcony running along the two walls that were lined with bookcases stretching from the floor to the ceiling. Another wall held arch-topped windows, their curtains caught at the waist to allow morning light to spill into the room. A single rug was set well back from the fireplace that dominated the final wall, a mouth of wrought iron that surrounded by tiles patterned with white vines on vivid orange. The rest of the floor was an intricate and angular pattern of inlaid wood, blonde and amber-brown shades set at angles to one another, crawling in regular lines from one wall to the next. That was what you saw looking straight ahead. Looking up, all you saw was books. Robin remembered, belatedly, Edwin saying that they had one of the largest private collections in the country. Hawthorne had called Edwin a librarian and clearly meant it as an insult, but Robin felt like he was viewing a page from a book on exotic creatures, demonstrating how the patterns of their hides allowed them to blend into their surroundings. Edwin stood near the centre of the library floor, shirt sleeves rolled to mid-forearm, one hand turning the page of a thick book splayed open on a table, while the other scratched at the back of his neck. Looking at him, Robin realised that before this moment, he'd never seen Edwin Corsay look even the slightest bit comfortable. And I'm just going to skip ahead a wee bit for spoilers. Mm. The cradle formed between Edwin's hands wasn't glowing, but the air caught within the string shimmered like the space above a hot pan. Pi 67... Pi 61, Kappa 14 2, Beta 0 1 7 through 9. Edwin clapped his hands, crushing the string between them, and then made a flicking motion. A sparse rustling sound like the wind in half-naked trees came from the bookshelves, and books shouldered their way out from the shelves like audience members called eagerly on stage to participate in, well, a magic show. They floated over to the table and settled in a row, ready to be opened. Robin felt like his entire face was a question. It must have been. Edwin looked at him and began at once to answer it. When I was 12, I spent an entire summer coming up with my own tables of classification based on subject matter. I've had to expand the system several times since then. He glanced around. Luckily, one can just keep adding more numbers. An alphabetization charm is, well, more complicated than you'd think. The notation takes up half a page. But it's been designed. It's easy to implement. It's just not sensible for a reference library. Where did you study? Pembroke, said Robin. Ra, light blues. Edwin nodded. I presume the Cambridge libraries are arranged much like the Oxford ones. 
indexed by a shelf position in the stacks. Haven't the foggiest? I'd assume so. As far as Robin was concerned, you requested books and they were fetched for you. He'd spent as little time in the library as possible. Not any more sensible if you want to browse by topic. There's a man in America who's published a similar kind of classification system based on numbers, actually. And I thought I was so ingenious when I came up with this one on my own. A wisp of bitter self-mockery in his voice. Robin said, faintly staggered, You were twelve. The ladder's imbuement is key to the classification system, and I've marked each book so that the indexing spell knows which ones to fetch. He stroked his fingers down the spine of the book in his hand. A briefly glowing pie 67 appeared, then faded. You invented this system. You applied it. Robin looked around them at the hundreds, thousands of books. And you carry the whole thing around in your head. I made a catalogue. Edwin indicated a small handbound volume he hadn't once touched. And if you're going to suggest that I was a very dull child, let me assure you that it would by no means be an original insult. When Robin was 12, he'd spent his summer trying to invent the game of indoor cricket, much to the distress of several antique urns in at least one window, and leaving beetles in Maud's bed. He had a sudden flash of a pale, bookish boy, the kind that he'd have barely noticed at school, except to wonder why they couldn't be more fun, creating tables and patiently inscribing book after book, forcing the sum of his knowledge to fall neatly within the dictates of his mind. Remind me not to make an enemy of you, Edwin Corsi, he said, smiling to show he meant no sting. I think yours is probably the kind of brain that could run a country. Edwin wasn't smiling, but something about the way he ducked his head suggests that he was pleased, and not sure how to handle being pleased. That would involve people, and I'm less good with people. I'll settle for knowing all the things I want to know, Edwin said quietly, when and how I need to know them. so sweet so yeah I oh, also I didn't read this out because it was in the spoilery bit but like his ladders are even enchanted to like you can step on it and it'll just like take you to the book that you need to go to oh so cool <laughs> I know so yeah I just like love that saying it's just like it's just a dream but I also like that scene because I think it shows you how they're like they're very different people because you get that little glimpse into like their childhood, the different like twelve year old boys they were, um. But also, it doesn't stop them from getting on with one another. It's nice in a way. Obviously, you're saying it flips between their points of view, mm-hmm. but it's rare to get a protagonist who you get their point of view that isn't bookish mm-hmm. in a book like this. Mm-hmm. So it's quite refreshing to have Robin that like sounds like he was just a bit of a like. Lads, lads, lads. Yeah, basically, yeah. No, I actually, I totally didn't write that in my notes, but that was something that I did really like about it, was that, like, the the Edwin character, I feel like, is way more, like, if you're a bookish person, you'll get it. Mm-hmm. It is very much, like, he, you know, he's, he's bullied because of his, like, magic. Like, he's not that magic, but he, like, has all this intelligence. And I feel like that's quite a typical protagonist of, like, a fantasy mm-hmm. novel. Whereas, like, yeah, Robin's just, like... Just a normal guy, but it's like, but it's just, it is such a like nice perspective to have both of them because, like, I think you kind of need a bit of the like the outsider Mm. to like feel because that's the character that most people I would argue like relate to is like the outsider. 
Um, Which is an irony. I- irony. <laughs> um, but yeah, I just love that Robin's just pure like... <laughs> wow! <laughs> it's just pure buzzing. Yeah. I don't know, it reminds me of like, you know, when you meet those guys that are like, you know, our age, but they still act like they're about 12 and they're like <laughs> building things out of tables and stuff like that. Like, you'll go to a pub and there'll be like a load of guys trying to like ping paper into cups and stuff like that mm-hmm. and you think oh my god and then they start speaking and they're like really intelligent yeah and you're like why didn't i expect that and it's because yeah. you don't have characters like that a lot yeah and yeah. i feel like he is that character yeah yeah oh we love robin oh yeah my last note for that scene is i just love how in awe robin is of edwin <laughs> um so yeah i wanted to read more of their relationship because because this is like a historical romance like it's not a spoiler that they end up together mm. and this is my favorite like little passage in the book and um, it's still from robin's perspective edwin has just had to save him from something that i won't say and he's made him like a little magic cup of tea to relax <laughs> and this is what robin says to him and from now on all my quotes are like a lot shorter <laughs> thank you robin blurted which seemed safe it's barely anything, said Edwin, even for someone like me. These leaves will take, not for the tea, for everything. I know it's a beastly bother for you coming here, and it's even more beastly the way these people treat you. It felt a relief to say it out loud. And I dare say most magical chaps would have simply tipped me into the midden, as Miss Morrissey would say, or at least tipped me into the hands of that assembly of yours, instead of spending so much time and effort trying to help me. Edwin's lips were parted in what looked like astonishment. Robin felt foolish enough that he contemplated upsetting the teapot as a diversion. <laughs> Robin, said Edwin finally, I dragged you out to the countryside, where you have been shot, magically drugged, set upon by wildlife, half-drowned, endured an escalating amount of pain from a curse that I can't remove, and managed to smile through a number of activities with my sister and her ghastly friends. I'm thankful you haven't hit me across the face and stormed back to London. Robin managed to hold his tongue on something truly unwise, like, you look like a Turner painting and I want to learn your textures with my fingertips. You are the most fascinating thing in this beautiful house. I'd like to introduce my fists to whoever taught you to stop talking about the things that interest you. Those were not things one blurted out to a friend. They were their own cradles of magic, an expression of the desire to transform one thing into another. And what if the magic went awry? Robin took a long sip of tea, instead, and smiled at Edwin through the steam. I'm not going anywhere, he said. Oh. I just think it's so sweet, and I love how polite it is <laughs> as well. I do think, I've been thinking about this as a tangent, but uh-huh. that reminds me of it. I think that we like our generation was taught politeness when we were little right and then you obviously rebel against it and then we were taught that it was kind of like cool to be like kind of brash and bold and like Mm -hmm. not impolite but you know like Mm. not really restrained Mm -hmm. and i've come to like circle back around to the conclusion that politeness is an excellent weapon and restraint is an excellent weapon to to have a fun conversation yeah, I feel like I've always been quite a polite person, though. But I get, been, I get like, what I've you I've always mean, had though. manners. Like, I've always minded my manners. Yeah. But, like, what I mean is, I don't know, I feel like culturally we're coming back round to 
liking that rather yeah. than finding it stuffy, we can find it witty. Yeah, I agree. It's almost like similarly but not quite the same like just like being nice to people like mm-hmm. I feel like that was just a thing where it was like you weren't expected to be nice to people mm-hmm. for a while which is was bizarre weird like yeah. like I'm always nice to people unless they do something horrible yeah <laughs> but, like, like but the default is be nice to, be them nice people, like... to everyone yeah yeah no I, I agree with what anyway but that yeah it was a very sweet scene yeah I like to introduce my fists to whoever told you to stop talking about things that interest you. Yeah, I think that's like my favourite line mm. in the whole book. It's so cute. However, I want to change pace a little and talk about the sex in this book. Nice. Because, magic aside, it is a romance book. Um, and I won't lie, I was like, I don't know if you feel the same about this, but I was slightly worried I wasn't going to like that part of the book because I don't read romance books. Right. Like, I don't read, like the sexy romance mm-hmm. books where like romance is like the main genre and I was like is all the like romance and sex scenes going to take away from like the character and the plot and feel very like oh this story's paused now for mm. this scene and then we'll like return to the narrative which is maybe fine for some people but that's just not what I would want um however I think it's really well done in this book not just in how it's like written but in how it's like prioritized you don't feel like you've been drawn out of the story and just given like a random bit of like erotica Mm. to read instead you actually they they further the plot and they like deepen the relationship between robin and edwin and i actually found that they like deepened my understanding of the characters as individuals as well and not just like as a couple Mm -hmm. which i think is quite interesting so I thought what I'd do to kind of show this is to read out just, like, their first kiss, because it's, like, the tamest example yeah. <laughs> that I can, like, read out. And this is a scene, finally, from Edwin's perspective. Um, and they've not long escaped the murderous hedge maze that okay. I mentioned earlier. So are you glad I plunged in after you now? It was an impossible question, coming at the end of an impossible day. And Edwin's emotions crowded him like birds trapped in a cage, beating and beating against his usual inability to express them. Strangest of all was the fact that for once he didn't feel afraid. Perhaps his fear, like his magic, had a finite volume, and he drained it all in the maze. They'd both almost died, and even if they'd been half the world away, with no blood pledged to hold Edwin responsible for keeping Robin alive, he'd still find the idea of Robin coming to further harm unacceptable. No, I'm not glad, he snapped, a wild and unstoppable lie. I knew you would be nothing but trouble. Robin was smiling because Robin didn't know what was good for him. That was how he ended up like this, with the scratches in his face and his hands, and and Edwin couldn't stop himself from reaching out and tracing the worst of the scabbed red lines, half flattered and half guilty and all over angry with the world for putting him here. Now... Richer than he'd been at the start of the day by one of the oldest magical properties in England, and by this, Robin Blythe lifting his palms willingly to Edwin's inspection, displaying the evidence that they'd both bled out of desperation today. Edwin was so angry it felt his skull like hot water. He couldn't breathe past it. Edwin, Robin said hoarsely, and Edwin pressed blindly forward and kissed him. It was a bad angle. It was a bad kiss. Edwin hadn't kissed anyone in years and it was like a language long unspoken in his mouth, coming out with the wrong cadences and with the grammar all askew. 
Robin's lips were soft beneath his. Edwin let himself stay for a quick count of two, which was as long as it took for horrified self-preservation to overcome the impulse that shoved him forward. He pulled away. He tried to. He'd barely created a distance between them when Robin closed it again, fast enough that Edwin couldn't focus in his face, couldn't classify the expression there. Robin's arms were tight around his back, wrapping him up, solid and inescapable. Once again, it was exactly what Edwin needed. His body melted into it, need rising up through him like vines, and in Robin's mouth was on his again, and all of a sudden the grammar of the thing fell into place. Oh, that's nice. <laughs> yeah. I love that, like, the reader of the couple talks about kissing, like, grammar. Yes. <laughs> and also, just, like, a bit of a side before I talk about this, I love, like, now that I've read a bit of Edwin's point of view, I hope you can kind of see how, like, negatively he views the world compared mm-hmm. to Robin, um, who's, like, relatively, like, upbeat. I don't know, I just love the contrast. And then, like, when they kiss, it, like, all balances out. Yeah. It's cute. And yeah, one last thing to say about sex in this book is something that I mentioned earlier in regard to the magic system. So you might remember from the very first quote that magic in this world is a contract and so consent is brought up a lot. Um, And I love how this being like a romance and a fantasy novel allows Marsk to make that jump between magical consent to sexual consent. It's just like a nice touch of world building that also, like, teaches you a nice lesson. Yeah. <laughs> um, and so I thought I'd read one last, slightly spicier moment to end my discussion here, um, where I still don't have to read anything too bad. Um, I'm not a prude. I'm just very aware that my dad listens to this podcast. Yeah, I was going to say. Um, so um, here's a little moment, which is very funny, um, but at the heart of it is, like, about the importance of consent, because we love that. Edwin moved to kneel behind him, Edwin's hands clutching at his hips. Edwin paused and kept on pausing. What are you waiting for? When it came, Edwin's voice was a rasping whisper, prompting, I, Robert Harold Blythe. Oh, you utter bastard. Yes, I, Robert Harold Blythe, fourth baronet of Thornley Hill, if that helps, consent to another small job of leftover pleasure shook him. Edwin's fingers were digging in hard. Yes? Anything, Robin gasped. Fuck anything, Edwin, please. You shouldn't, Edwin sounded wrecked. I could take so many things from you with a contract like that. I really fucking wish you would, said Robin. <laughs> <laughs> Love that. I know. I don't know, I just... I, ho- I hope you can like see what I mean. Like Words are very important in this like magic system which makes more sense when you read it i'm trying to be vague because Mm. of the actual plot but yeah contracts in particular wording is very important this is just a more entertaining way of showing you that yeah i thought i would just end quickly by telling you guys the little that i know about book two um which is out later this year it's called a restless truth um it's set the year after this one on a luxury ocean liner crossing the atlantic and it's about robin's sister maud who you do meet in a marvellous light, and she has a female love interest. And I thought I would also read out one of the tweets that 
Rhea Marsk wrote about it. She says it contains titanic references, jewel thieves, fake seances, an argumentative parrot, Edwardian sex toys and Victorian gay erotica. More magic, more world building, more backstory, more horrible magicians. (laughs) That's such a good tweet. I know. So it sounds very fun. I'm looking forward to it. And yeah, that's a marvellous light. I just had so much fun reading it. Like, I was actually laughing at bits. I mean, yeah, <laughs> clearly. Um, but there's also bits where I was genuinely like, oh, that's so sweet. And I did, like, the whole, like, magic curse plot, which I've obviously not talked about because that's, like, the spoilery bit. Mm. Um, but yeah, if you're looking for a historical fantasy that is unapologetically queer and sweet and, like, a little bit steamy at times, then this is for you. I really, I just finished a book and I haven't started a new one yet and mm. I really want to read that now. Yeah, you should. But, yeah, oh. well done. I also think it's, like, interesting what you were saying about romances and, like, when the sex scenes, it's just, like, a random bit of erotica and then you go back to the plot. Because I feel like that's what loads of, like, romantic movies are. Yeah. Like, it'll have the plot and then you'll have a random sex scene that's nothing to do with anything. Yeah. And then you go back to the plot and a lot of like YA romances like very it doesn't always have the explicit sex scene right but it'll have like a very fade to black moment and then it goes back to the plot mm-hmm. and I, I think that that's like really dumb because that like perpetuates the narrative that sex is like not a part of life yeah it's like apart from your real life yeah, and I'm yeah. like I really appreciate like that kind of romance where it's all integrated into the plot. I feel like the last book I read that did that was Ghosts by Dolly Alderton. Yeah, I remember you talking about that on yeah, the podcast. I feel yeah. like it was just like when it is contextualised and it all makes sense. Yeah. It's and, so good. And like to be fair, most books I do read, that is what it's like, is it, it is mm. really part of the narrative because I think that is a thing that is pretty common now. Mm. Like, yeah, it's like demanded. With, with the new now. books coming out. But this is just like the first book I've read in a while that is like actually about the sex scene mm-hmm. like I just I don't know but uh, yeah I really enjoyed it it's good nice. <laughs> what are you infatuated with this week my infatuation this week is the final revival of Opal and Nev by Donnie Walton mm-hmm. this book was on my list for ages and then I finally got it last Christmas so it had major hype in my head but has lived up to it so <laughs> all good this is Donnie Walton's debut novel which makes me hate her a little bit because <laughs> okay. it's so good it's like very sure and in control of what it's doing it's like big brain writing and that like blows my mind um so it's the novel is in the vein of taylor jenkins reads books mm-hmm. uh so like daisy jones and the six or the seven husbands of evelyn hugo particularly it's very like those okay for anyone who doesn't know those books and this one um are fictional oral histories And this is of a fictional band, Opal and Nev, from the 70s. Um, But it intertwines, like a lot of those other books, fiction and reality. So it uses real-life cultural figures and historical events as the backdrop for the band's story. So it feels like you're reading a real music memoir, but Mm -hmm. you're not. Love that. So I'll give you like a rough synopsis of it. Um, The story is that Opal and Nev are a transatlantic interracial musical duo so Nev is like this white ginger English songwriter and Opal is a black bald American vocalist Um, and the fact that she's bald is like important Mm -hmm. there they have a fleeting moment of fame in the early 70s collecting a cult following 
and then that kind of falls apart and Nev goes on to have a massive pop career and Opal kind of fades mm-hmm. from the spotlight. So the book is music journalist Sonny Shelton's attempt to find out the truth of their story in the run-up to this huge reunion show that they're going to do at a music festival in 2016. Okay. Which already I would have read. Yeah. But then the kicker is, early in their career, this isn't a spoiler, Opal and Nev were rocketed to fame because a race riot broke out at their label Showcase. And during the riot, their drummer, a black man named Jimmy Curtis, was killed. Mm. Curtis, who was married, was having an affair with Opal while his wife was pregnant. The child, which was born a few weeks after his death, is the journalist, Sonny. So she's not only trying to find out the truth about the band, she's trying to find out the truth about this woman that her dad was having an affair with and what happened the night that he died. Yeah. (sighs) (laughs) So the premise is already so good. Yeah. Um, And you get all that within the first few pages. Mm -hmm. But I'm not really going to talk about the plot of the novel other than that because I think that seeing how all the history unfolds and especially because with this kind of polyphonic novel you have all these contradicting voices Mm -hmm. that tell conflicting accounts of the same events. I think that's all part of the fun. Yeah. So I'm not really going to talk about that. Um, But what I am going to talk about is how much I fall in love every time with books like this with the made-up art. Yeah. Because I just think it's such a fun feature of this particular genre. Kind of like magic systems. Yeah. Yeah, one of my favourite things about this oral history genre is that you have to make an entire believable back catalogue for the characters. Mm -hmm. And I think that imagining what kind of art a person would produce is such an interesting way to convey a character. Mm -hmm. In this novel, a lot of the focus is on Opal and Nev's work and also Opal trying to forge her own artistic identity. So you get a lot about that. There's like romances and there's personal dramas and all of that, but you get a lot about art and work, which I really enjoy. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, I'm going to just read some snippets of that happening, um, okay. essentially. <laughs> that was a lot of build-up for not very much, but that's, that's what I was infatuated with about this novel. So, here we go. I will start with the way that Opal gets her stage name, because I love this little scene. So, this is Nev Charles, and Heisey, that is referred to as Bob Heisler, producer. When we got the first day down, Heisey took Opal and me to eat at a 24-hour diner and he smoked ciggies while she and I stuffed ourselves. I was ravenously hungry, probably because I hadn't eaten well leading up, but now the old appetite had come roaring back. I remember there was a cranky child in the booth beside ours, out way past his bedtime, and he'd been crying in that wound-up way that sleepy babies often do. Nah, nah, nah. But when our lot sat down, he shut right up. Opal was quite something to look at, all done up. So we were noses deep in breakfast for dinner, waffles and sausages and eggs and ham steak side, and a few mugs of coffee that ramped up the jitters even more. And then Heisey made his excuses and he dropped bills on the table, enough to cover, and he left us by ourselves. We stayed in that diner until the sun came up. There were so many questions I wanted to ask her, about where she'd been hiding and why, and what she thought of the music, but I thought better of it, figured I should just be grateful that the day's session had gone well. So instead, we passed the time dreaming out loud, mostly. The beginnings of any new thing are so lovely. Opal Joe. We were eating in a diner when Nev asked me how I wanted my name to appear on the album, how I heard it announced from the stage. Shocking, I know, but that wasn't something I had honestly thought about yet. 
I'd dreamed about my name in lights, up on a marquee somewhere, sure, but I always saw it as what it was, Opal Robinson. That's the truth. But Opal Robinson was a very different person now, separate from this entertainer I was becoming. Nev Charles. We kicked around a few ideas. Opal Odd was one, which would have made a great future punk name when you think about it, but at the time it seemed too obvious. Opal Joe. I told him I had to keep the opal. After all those years suffering through other people's nasty slurs for me, I had earned the right to own what my mama meant for me to be called. Nev Charles. The series of exotic-sounding foreign names, Opal Amour, Opal Magnifique, Opal Joe. I dig the French, but I'm a Negro from Detroit, USA. We don't put on airs like that. Nev Charles. Just Opal, nothing else, but then we thought, well, there's already Odetta, and maybe that's confusing. Opal Joe. The sun was coming up when we hit the right one. Nev Charles. I drank her in. I mean, really looked at her. All her vibrant colours, the sparkle on her eyelids, her dimensions and sharp edges. Her rarity. It put me in mind of a gemstone. A jewel. Opal Jewel. Opal Jewel. Opal Jewel, wrinkling her nose. I asked him, isn't that kind of redundant, like saying desk furniture? And he shrugged and laughed and said, nah, it's like an exclamation point. A reiteration. It makes it undeniable that's what you are. So I said it a few times, and it sounded all right. Nev Charles. She seemed to like it well enough. It raised a tiny smile over the toast crusts anyway. (laughs) That's cute. I know, it's a nice little scene. Um, And then I thought I would just read some snippets from the building of their first album, which is called Polychrome, which I think is a cool name. Mm for Opal and Nev's first album because they're all about like, oh, she's black and I'm white and mm. the world is all different colours. Yeah. Because it's the 70s. Um, so, yeah, I feel like this... the Not every piece of work that's referred to has got this much detail in it, but because this is their first album, it gets so much like airtime mm-hmm. in the novel. It's so fun. So it starts off with this bit with Nev and his songwriting. So for a bit of context... Nev sees Opal performing in a bar and decides that he has to have her as his duo partner. So his label reaches out to her with like a shit contract because she's a nobody and she's black and she's a woman. Mm -hmm. And she rejects it. Straight off the bat, she's like, no. And then he goes to her house to win her over and we get this lovely little scene. Nev Charles. Everything on the album by that point made me absolutely ill. So first I launched into this new thing I was working out. I was calling it the A Crowd, tentative title, just bits and bobs about people I'd observed up and down the metro line. It was fascinating to me that if you stayed on the A long enough, or any line in New York really, you meet so many of the people the city has to offer. Rich and poor, stylish and stuffy, black and white, young and old. Eh, it's kind of boring, is what she said. And she may have also used the word cliched, or maybe I've added that to my memory over the years, but you get the gist. It was horrifying humiliating and a host of other horrendous h-words. I'd done all this arguing on her behalf, on behalf of an imagined partnership in which I was already insanely invested, and then when it came down to the show and tell, she apparently thought that I was the one on audition. I was so taken aback I forgot to be cross. I wondered if I should go, but she just glossed over my complete mortification and asked me to please sing her something else. I managed to gather up the pieces of my shattered ego and was Johnny on the spot with Girl in Gold. Opal Jewel, singing. 
Borrowed time on the stage, but she acts like she owns it. She has my heart and she doesn't even know it. My mouth is dry, my senses have gone, wrapped up in the girl with the gold dress on. Nev claims he made that up right then at my kitchen table, but I've never believed it. Ain't nobody that quick. He had to have put some thought into it. Had to have put some thought into me. I was... Well, I was all in my feelings about that, and I was already sweaty and hot. I was wilting under that bouffant. I put my hand up to my head, and before I knew what I was doing, I'd whipped the damn wig off. Nev Charles. Her mouth made this perfectly round O. She looked so beautiful and vulnerable then, she might as well have doffed her top. A glimpse of that vulnerability locked inside Opal. Wow, it's rare, but when it hits you, it'll knock you flat. She kept her gaze on mine, and it was like she was questioning me or maybe fearful of my reaction. Of course, I was curious as to her condition. Was she ill? What had caused her hair to go patchy like that? And then I realised in a flash the thing that made her face so fascinating to look at. She scarcely had any eyebrows. But I didn't say a word. I didn't ask any questions. I kept as still as I possibly could. We sat in silence a few moments, staring at each other, and then I tried singing the lyric again, testing it in different keys, different rhythms wrapped up in the girl with the gold dress on. Just then, her sister came home. The sound of that key in that lock was a jolt, and Opal shot up and scrambled to put the wig back in place, as if we'd been caught at something indecent. The moment was gone. I exchanged some how-do-you-do's with her sister, and then Opal was hurrying me off. On my way out the door, I asked her what she thought of the song, what she thought of coming to New York now, and she said, I liked it fine, but I was wearing shorts, not a dress. I laughed and told her I was taking poetic license. And do you know what she said to me then, the clever girl? She said, you tell your boss to take some poetic license with that contract and maybe I'll think about it. <laughs> That's good. And, <laughs> I, I think that one of the things I like about books like this is like they're all, like even real music memoirs, they're all always got that like little sassy punch yeah. at the end of a scene. Yeah, and yeah. she's done it so well in this book. <laughs> And then I'll just skip forward a little bit to Neb's soundscape, because then this is where you start to get an idea of the album. Mm -hmm. I was gone and probably close to developing scurvy, but I was 21 years old and suffering for my art, as they say. I wanted to feel morose and romantic. I wanted to do penance at the altar of greatness. How bloody pretentious, but in my mind I would push through it, and when I came out the other side, when Opal got in place and it was time to record... I would be shining and brilliant and ready and sporting a lean, craggy face that maybe looked like it had been some places. A face that would make for a better album cover, at least. I had a lot of work in front of me because Rosie was the only tune I'd ever done with two people in mind. Now I had to dedicate myself to considering everything in that way, coming up with different permutations that would make for something dynamic as the needle moved from track to track. At first I wasn't thinking about lyrics and themes. I was focused on tempos and on trying to hear the actual sound, what the vocal flow of the album might be. Maybe on one song, Opal would just sing the bridge. Maybe on another, we're trading verses. Maybe the album was going to alternate, one song mine and one song hers. The guitar was useful in attempting to figure that out, but I also remember suddenly wishing for a piano as a countering sound, and a drum kit too, to give propulsion and maybe strings. Factoring in a different person meant I was thinking bigger about the possibilities of the music. Two people needed more than what my meagre acoustic guitar could afford especially when one of those people was Opal. I didn't see any girls. I stopped hanging around the village. I took an occasional call from Heisey, who was doing his own preparations, and I would ring Opal in Detroit, 
partly to feel assured that she was indeed coming, and partly to remember the cadence of her voice. Sometimes she would speak to me, and sometimes she wouldn't. <laughs> I like that line, sometimes she would speak to me, because I feel like that's like the muse. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> sometimes she would speak to me, and sometimes she wouldn't. <laughs> and then you have... Also, I like the idea that I think people think about art and they think about artists being really pure and not commercial minded at all. But I love the idea that he's like, I wanted to be romantic and suffer from art, but also I wanted to have a face that was good in an album cover. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And like, it's it's interesting because they do this in Daisy Jones as well, where like they talk about, I suppose it's slightly cliche, but it's like they maybe want to do one thing but they have the record label like telling them to do another mm. like there's all those things that I think are interesting to hear that make they would almost make it sounds like they're like art's like a lie yeah. <laughs> it's like it's all fake but then like the way that the actual artist obviously they're a fake person but the way yeah. the actual artist is writing about it shows that they still do care about it yeah, like when he's thinking, like the creativity. I like that the commercial side of it and the creativity comes through. Yeah, yeah. Because I think that, I don't know, something that I love about this book and that I love about culture in general right now is that people are starting to recognise that art is work. Yeah. Like it doesn't just happen. You have to actually think about it. Yeah. So that's quite nice. So anyway, but then we have this funny bit where you're getting the album art and to put this in context when Sonny is investigating this now obviously 40 years later Mm -hmm. this album kind of flopped and some people think it's because of the album art right? because they blew all their budget on the music right okay which you would would think that would be the right move for a musician Mm -hmm. but yeah so we have this this is Sonny's editor notes from her interview sessions with the producer Heisey and at the time he's dying of cancer in his home and she's doing a kind of Tuesdays with Maury thing where she goes and visits him in weekly sessions. And he always asks her to put on records from his collection. And so then we have this little scene. For some reason, I was worried about rushing too abruptly, too aggressively into the work Bob had done with my father. And so I avoided playing polychrome until my conversations with him naturally led there. The afternoon, I finally pulled that album from the closet having exhausted the topics of Bob taking a risk on Rivington and an interest in Nev, I dropped the needle on the vinyl with my heart in my throat. There was static and a pop from the console, and then Jimmy Curtis's driving drumbeat kicked open yellow belly. In his bed, Bob smiled as if he'd been waiting for this. And here we are, he said. You've got the original pressing there? Of course, I said, and I turned down the volume slightly so my recorder could catch whatever Bob would say next. I walked back across the room to the chair set by his side and held up the cover for him to check. My God, what on earth was I thinking? He chuckled and shook his head as he ran his fingers over the image of the gumball machine with Opal and Nev's heads topsy-turvy inside. I didn't know much what I was doing back then when it came to the marketing. The look. Oh, I think the art's kind of fun. A little bit poppy. Was it Warhol-inspired? You're much too kind, Bob said, his eyes sparkling, amused. When I showed your dad this cover and asked him what he thought, he barely looked at it. He said, is my name somewhere on there? I said, of course, Jimmy, yes, you're credited on every song in the liner notes. And you've got it spelled right, man? I'm positive, yeah, that part wasn't too hard. And the check you're writing me is going to clear? I promise you I made sure of that, if nothing else. He just handed it back to me and said, then I guess it looks pretty good to me. 
<laughs> but I like I like first of all that you can immediately imagine this it's a gumball machine. Yeah. Looks Warhol inspired. Mm-hmm. I like that you can see it, but also it is cringe. Yeah, yeah. I was trying to do this in my bed the other night. I was trying to think about how you write something bad. Like how you create mm. in your head like bad art. I feel like that's yeah. a skill. <laughs> yeah, I don't know how I would do that. Yeah, just props for that, because I was like, <laughs> how would I get across an album that would be like, an album cover that feasibly would have been made? Yeah, because that's so be believable. Shit. Like, I yeah. can see, th- I could definitely see that. Like, the album's polychrome, it's all these colours, you think Gumball, yeah. yeah, like, you can see it, but it would look shit. <laughs> um, then, we have Opal and Virgil Lafleur, who is her best friend and her flatmate. Um, obviously, he's a gay man. And he's creating her look for her first session recording the album, so skipping back a little bit. And at this point, she's seen the concept of the album, Polychrome, but we as readers don't know that yet. Okay. We don't know about the album concept. So this is her transformation. I swear there's a method in the madness of the order I'm telling this. (laughs) Opal Joe. The transformation was partly Virgil's idea and partly mine. I'd been practicing the songs for a few days and they were all right. Some of them were pretty good, but he kept telling me he wasn't feeling it. Imitating Virgil. Not moved, Cher, I am just not moved. I kept singing them different and I thought better and more interesting, riffing and all that, but he still had the sceptical attitude. Then he seemed to be getting bored with me, or annoyed with this whole project, that he probably thought was a go-nowhere deal, and at that point I was willing to try anything to keep my ass off the next bus to Detroit. Virgil Lafleur. Her big day called for a flourish of drama, and perhaps a bit of distraction, illusion, because the secret to understanding mad, this is what he calls her, the secret to understanding mad is that she's not the most brilliant vocalist, but she is an excellent, magical performer. I pictured her in a caftan, a gauzy and ethereal garment that would float on her and go, ah, whenever she moved. It had to be airy enough to show shadows of her underneath it writhing, dancing, gliding. Yes, I was dressing her for the stage, for all who interacted with her to be thrilled and intimidated by her magnificence. All the different colours were her vision. Opal Joe. Polychrome. That was the theme. Virgil Lafleur. We started with a bright yellow organza, which was tray, tray sheer, so we had to get it enough to layer it. And we got a buttrick fast and easy pattern that I nearly tore to shreds for it being so difficult. We pieced it together in a circle shape because when she stretched her arms out, she had to look as if she had glorious wings. Then we put it on her and she looked like a raving old madam. Opal Joe. He started going at it with scissors, edging it up. He cut the shoulders out, which looked good. Then he took some material in the other colours, the red and the green and blue, and he put strips of it on. Vertical down the front and back, circle round the cuffs and around the bottom. Then we went in with the makeup. Aquamarine eyeshadow and a bright magenta lip. It was wild. But when we tried it with some of the wigs I'd carried with me from Detroit, and no matter which one, the Supreme Bouffant or the Afro or that Pocahontas mess, it didn't go. None of them was right. And I remembered Nev already knew about my condition, so who the hell cared anymore? I was sick of hiding it anyway. I was so frustrated I could have ripped out what hair was left, straight from the root. I asked Virgil, you know where we can get some big earrings? I'm about to need them. Virgil Lafleur. 
I located the clippers I used on some of my more rehearsal clientele, and voila, instant avant-garde, cheekbones, drama, elegance. Opal Jewel. I looked in the mirror and saw a different person. I couldn't stop staring. I couldn't stop turning every which way. Couldn't stop wondering, who is this girl? How does this girl sing? Not like a church girl, or like an open mic act, or even like Rose Stone, much as I loved her. This other girl was something else. <laughs> I love a transformation scene. Yeah, I love that line about like, where can I get the big earrings because I'm going to need them. <laughs> That's so funny. I feel like that is such a, yeah, such a, I like the practical decisions that Opal makes. Yeah. <laughs> book that's very indicative of her character. Um, so yeah, obviously I've said all of these things about like the art and the way Opal looks and all of that comes before we actually have any idea what the album's going to sound like. Mm-hmm. And then we finally, finally get to the concept of the album. Again, this is from the sort of contextualising bits, the editor's notes. Also, this is ra- this is unrelated, but this chapter is called Skinny Mini and a Whole Lot of Look, which I just <laughs> I like think is a good little line. Okay. <clears throat> On August 14th, 1970, the players for the Polychrome concept album were scheduled to gather at Rivington Records. Each of the ten songs, which Nev had meticulously reconstructed from memory for highs and the session players just three days in advance, included a colour in its title and, true to the artist's signature style, told a vivid story about an offbeat character. To achieve the organic sound Highs heard in his head, the album was to be captured live, with the assembled players recording each song straight through after a few practice takes. And I'm just going to stop there because I feel like that, as soon as you hear a colour in its title about a character, I'm like, I love this album. (laughs) I would listen to this album. Yeah. So, yeah, there's loads of great scenes that happen in the studio, but they focus more on, like, the relationships between the musicians mm-hmm. than the music itself, which is cool because you have this tension of being in the studio but not knowing what it sounds like, obviously, because it's a book. Yeah. But I love that... So after... So you get that concept, then you get all the studio scenes, you still don't really know what it sounds like, and afterwards all you get is this, which is meant to be a cutting of a review. Mm-hmm. from a very small magazine. Well, it's from NME when it was a very small magazine. Okay. Excerpt from Uni to the USA, NME, week ending November 21st, 1970, by Stuart Fitzsimmons. Since his days performing for a pint, Charles sings with more gravity. The nasal sound that often pushed his clever character studies towards irksomeness has been replaced with a bolder, richer tone. At times, it may remind you of the one McCartney employs when singing of Lady Madonna, or his darling headed for the golden slumbers. Perhaps it's a trick of studio magic, but no doubt a percentage of this change comes honest, from the grit New York City must have shoved underneath his fingernails. There is also a new colour in Charles's kit, the Negro collaborator who joins him on the album's better songs and basks in a solo turn near the end red-handed. She calls herself Opal Jewel and, according to the promotional materials NMA received, was discovered wasting away in an amateur Detroit sister act. On the quiet romance Evergreen, a canon in two, Charles holds the melody steady while his eccentric partner experiments around him. She dips up, she falls down, she speaks sings. She is not the strongest vocalist by any technical measure, 
but she won't be accused of being snoozy. I found Polychrome to be at his most charming when the amps creep up. Should it get any attention in America, Yellow Belly will presumably annoy Mr Nixon and his foggy contemporaries, not only with its political message, but also with its loud, ramshackle aesthetic. Similarly, Chalk White is an ear piercer turned to ten. Overall, worth a listen, despite its lack of cohesion and its exceedingly silly packaging. <laughs> I want to listen to it. I know! Doesn't it sound so good? I really want to know what Evergreen is, because I feel like that's such a, again, like, a quiet romance. Evergreen, like, it's always lasting. Yeah. I can hear that metaphor already. Yeah. I love that. And you don't get any lyrics, apart from the ones that wow. they... Yeah. They sort of say, like, you know how at the end of Daisy Jones you had all the you lyrics? You had the songbook, basically, yeah. But I read an interview with Donnie Walton, and someone was like, oh, give us a lyric from one of their songs, and she was like, I only know the one that's in the book. Yeah. I don't know, the, I haven't written the songs. I, I quite like when an author is like that, mm-hmm. they're like, no, the book's the book. Yeah. Like, I didn't think about it. <laughs> yeah, I didn't, I didn't go further than what I needed to write the book. <laughs> so yeah, I think that I really enjoyed that as a review as well, because I think that oral histories or like full journalism is such a creative way of doing world building when because I've been thinking about this when what you're building isn't necessarily another world like in sci-fi or fantasy Mm. but a culture Mm. if you're trying to like expose a culture full journalism is so useful yeah like the way I can totally conceptualize that album and it's only a very small part of the story is cool the level of detail like I say does continue throughout the book but you don't get as much on everything Mm -hmm. but I also really like the parodies of all the different journalistic voices that you get because you get loads of wee snippets because obviously it's my job and it's funny to see (laughs) just it's funny to see how predictable journalists are when we all think that we're very original Mm -hmm. so yeah I haven't actually talked about the characters or even all the socially relevant themes but when I tried to find the passages that show that, they've just all got spoilers in them. Yeah, that's true. So I have skipped that. But what I will say on that is that the book is very rich with voices. It has voices from every sort of background and every sort of prejudice that you could imagine. There is one character in particular who's from a band that are meant to be kind of like Alabama rock, mm-hmm. um, who is just the most infuriating and hateful mm. But it's so well done. Yeah. Like, I couldn't even make myself read out half the things he says, because <laughs> I was like, I'm not reading that. But it's so well done, because it makes you so angry. Yeah. And it's obviously got, like, race, politics, punk movement, misogyny, it has addiction, it has all of these different things in it, and it manages to show microaggressions very well. It doesn't shy away from any of the issues that it brings up. It goes very whole hog into them. Mm-hmm. I just haven't, because it's... Like I say, spoilery, and for a lot of it, it's not really my place either. Yeah. Um, But most of all, it always feels quite rollicking and rock and roll. Yeah. So I like that it's managed to get into all of those things without... It never feels heavy. Yeah. It always feels like it's about music. Mm. I realise that's all very, like, vague and gushy, but (laughs) I hope that I have convinced some people that it is worth a read, because I really, really loved it. (laughs) I have never heard of it before, but it sounds amazing, and I also want to read that. So I think it's crazy that so few people have heard of it when it is essentially like the same vibe as all of Taylor Jenkins Reid's books. Yeah. And I don't think it's an accident that it's because Donnie Walton's black. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but that makes sense. Go read Donnie Walton <laughs> if you like Taylor Jenkins Reid. She's so good. Mm-hmm.
writing chat. Mm-hmm. So this week we were talking about if someone in particular inspired you to write. Yes. What did you um, come up with for that? My answer is like yes and no. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so what I mean by that is that I think I've always wanted to be a writer. Mm-hmm. Like I can't think of anyone specific that inspired me to do that when I was like a little kid like it's just something I've always wanted to do however when I was trying to think about it I realized that there's quite a few people like along the way at different stages of my life who inspired me so I thought I would like this is literally exactly the same as my answer right okay so (laughs) let's just dive in so for example I was already like writing at this point but when I first read John Green's books mm. I was like a big fan of him from his YouTube channel Vlogbrothers which is still going which is madness but yeah and I think that's the first time I realised that like authors were real people because mm. <laughs> like he's a person who makes like silly videos on the internet but he's like this author who writes quite like poignant mm. and beautiful books I, was, I think I just not sort of consciously but I think I was kind of like oh I like I could I could do that. You could like, be more than an author and still be an author. Yeah, yeah. Um, so yeah, I think it just kind of opened my eyes a bit, and like gave me the kick I needed to like apply for English at uni. Mm. Not that you need to do English at uni to be a writer, but you know I was younger, thought that you did. So, and I actually, I actually told him that when I met John Green and Hank Green, I was like, I think it was a book signing for. The fault in our stars and I was like oh you're the reason that I'm going to go study writing and he was like really like pleased that's so cute I know then when I was at college which wasn't like long after that I discovered Zoe Sog or mm. Zoella um and like her beauty lifestyle fashion blog and like she led me to finding so many other bloggers which eventually led me to start my own blog obviously it's like a very different kind of writing but I still think I wouldn't have done it if I hadn't seen mm. her. Like, she was... Say what you like about Zoella. She she was the first one who did it. Yeah. So, <laughs> you know, fair play. And then, I've kind of told this story before, but, like, at the start of 2020, I read The Star of the Sea, which was, like, very... No. Did you? I know. What's was that this, about? <laughs> which was this very, like, transformative experience is how it fit in. <laughs> Because, yeah, I'd like I'd read a few books that had given me ideas for a novel, but when I read The Starless Sea, it was like, oh my god, I need to finally write my novel, mm. basically. Which, like, so she was definitely someone specific to point to. So basically what I realised, like, when I wrote this answer was that, yeah, different people inspired me at different points in my life, and I think I, like, not to sound all hippy dippy but like I feel like I found them at the moment that I needed them mm. <laughs> was very much the vibe that I realised serendipity yes yeah I feel like I've always because I've always had like people like around me like supporting me and being like oh you can be a writer but I don't think everyone anyone in my real life has actually inspired me to write mm. so yeah that's my answer nice mine is similar yeah like my short answer is like no because I was writing stories and poems before I was doing it for any purpose yeah yeah like i was just doing it for fun but i do think that there's like a difference between writing instinctually and writing intentionally 
Mm, um, mm-hmm. Like there's a difference between just doing it because you are doing it and like honing it as a craft or like having it as a part of your identity. Yeah. And I think in that respect, as much as she's a problem now, J.K. Rowling was probably the first author that I really knew about as being a person, similar to what you're saying mm. about um, John Green, because I don't know what it was about her. Obviously, I loved the Harry Potter books, and then the films came out, and she was like on TV talking yeah, about. Yeah, she probably was one of the first authors that you saw actually doing interviews and stuff. Yeah, I feel like now it's quite common, but I feel like it wasn't before. Or maybe like, like maybe it just wasn't children's authors or something. I guess. I don't know. Yeah, maybe. But like. She was the first time that, and also because she like lived in Edinburgh, and that was like somewhere that I'd been. Yeah, yeah. So I connected her with like my life. Yeah, yeah. yeah. As like that's a thing that people here can do. So that was quite cool, and I think that was when like, when I was really little, because when I was really little, and people asked me what I wanted to do, I used to say I was going to be an artist, mm. like a painter. Mm. I'm not that good, so I would never <laughs> have been that. But I think then when I said oh, maybe I'm going to be an author. And that's, like, an actual... As much as it's, like, a hard job to do, it's more of a... It's more of a stable job than a painter, I feel. Maybe yeah. it's, it's viewed as more of a stable yeah. job than a yeah. painter. It's probably not. But, like... <laughs> yeah. So then people would be like, oh, yeah, do that. So then that kind of got me on that um, vibe. I did have a teacher. I was trying to think through all my teachers, and I feel like so many teachers inspired me to read. Mm-hmm. but maybe not right but I did have a teacher when I was about eight called Mrs McCallum and she would she gave us you know those tiny little notebooks that were like skinny and like short did you ever have those daughters like that were like tiny oh, tiny yeah, ones yeah, yeah so she gave us all those and they were only for interesting words or phrases and we mm. had to write them down, like, if you were reading your, like, book for school or whatever. Yeah. And you found an interesting word. And you had to fill in, like, five a week or something, say. Yeah. But it was it was quite, like, independent study for so young. Yeah. Because she would be like, yeah, you have a week and you have to find five over your own reading. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And she'd make us write them down. And then when it came to, like, your creative writing bits, she would say, use one of your phrases from your book. Yeah. And so that was probably the first time that I got into the habit of, like, thinking about writing. Yeah, that's And then cool. doing it. So that was really cool. I remember, like, I would take my daughter home, and you weren't supposed to, and I would, like, <laughs> sit in my bed, and I'd be reading, and I'd be writing down new phrases and yeah. stuff. So that was, like, that was nice. I thought about it more. I was like, if you want to be broad about it, I grew up in a house where there was always music on, mm. like, all the time. So I was constantly exposed to different forms of writing in that way. Mm-hmm. Um, like, my dad has a very eclectic taste, so I'd have, like, Pink Floyd, The Doors, Oasis, Kylie Minogue, Ella Fitzgerald, <laughs> like, <laughs> yeah. all these different people. So I think that probably unconsciously helped. Mm-hmm. And then when you were talking about Erin Morgenstern and, like, that push, I feel like that, for me, was probably, like, Taylor Jenkins Reid, Anna Burns, Dolly Alderton. When I read books by those women I was like I think I hadn't read the type of book that I would write before I'd Mm -hmm. always read the type of book that I enjoyed reading but I knew that I wouldn't write it like fantasy I wouldn't really write Mm -hmm. and like you know I read a lot of like actiony books and I would never write that so when I found those books I was like oh yeah I have to write that that's what I've been trying to do yeah it's like you you sort of get inspired not to like copy 
exactly what someone's done, but it's almost like it gives you permission to write the thing. Yeah, because you're like, like, oh, someone else has done that, so like that is an actual that thing is an actual that I can thing. do. Yeah, yeah, or like it gives you a bit of a map because I remember really struggling with an idea in uni, and I did like fragments of it, but nothing ever came of it because I was like, I don't know how to forge this. Mm-hmm. I don't have the skills yet to like mm-hmm. make this a thing. And then reading Daisy Jones and the Six, I was like, that's what I was trying to do. Yeah, yeah. And it was just so validating to see it existing, even though I was like, oh man, I wanted to do that, and now someone else has done it. And then I was like, no, that's a good thing. Yeah, yeah. So, yeah, that it was a short answer, it turned into a very long answer. <laughs> but, yeah, I think the, the gist would be you get inspired at different points in your life by different things. Yeah, definitely. What's your quickfire favourite? My quickfire favourite is a YouTube channel. Oh. It's Mr. Kate. They are an interior design duo, Kate and Joey. And they've got popular on YouTube like a few years ago now because they would redecorate YouTubers' houses. Right. Like that was kind of how, that was like their big series. And it's always like a mix of like, they will buy stuff, but they'll also like, do like DIY, upcycling, like thrifting, stuff like that. Mm. So I used to watch them back in the day and then didn't for a bit because like I felt like they were just all the same as mm. you again and again. But now I'm watching them again because they have a new series on their channel. They've moved to Hawaii from LA and just bought like a total fixer upper. But they can't do any like building work on it right now because like permits mm. are different in Hawaii. Like it takes a long time for things to get approved. But they're like, we don't want to live in this, like, shell of a house, so we're going to have to decorate it. But it's not, like, a permanent mm. decoration. So that's kind of the series, is them, like, decorating, adjusting to island life. Because they know they'll change a bunch of stuff when they're actually able to, for now it's more of, like, an aesthetic change. Like, paint, thrifting, everything's on a budget. Mm. Um, so it's just, like, it's fun, it's easy to watch, and, like... They're painting every room a different colour. Mm. And it just makes me want to, like, paint our flat in, like, a rainbow. <laughs> Which I won't, but, like... I mean, we can. <laughs> but, yeah, I don't know. It's just fun. It's, like, it's such easy watching. Yeah, I was going to say, it sounds useful for... Yeah, no, it definitely is. I, I have... Over the years, I have had quite a few ideas from Mr. Kate on, like, what to do with, like, you know, like, my student bedrooms yeah. or, like, stuff like that. Um, so yeah, well worth a watch. Also, it's like it's in Hawaii, so it's very pretty. Yeah, I was gonna so, say, well, good for them. Yeah, I mean, it did like flood within the months of them being there, but you know, you will move to an island. Yeah, so. <laughs> <laughs> I, I say living on an island. Yeah, it's different though. Different. <laughs> yeah. Uh, what is your quickfire favorite? My quickfire favorite this week is Shocker, a song. Mm. It is Northsiders by Christian Lee Hudson who I'd never heard of, but he released um, a song called Rubber Neckers a few weeks ago, and Maisie Peters and Phoebe Bridgers and Orla Gartland all posted about it that day. So I was like, okay, clearly this is someone I need to know about. <laughs> yeah. Um, and it turns out that he played on... He's played with Boy Genius, he's played with Connor Oberst and Phoebe Bridgers, mm. like all those people that I love. Um, and so I went and listened to his last album, which is called Beginners. And it's this like beautiful, dreamy, like folky record. Um, it's all about his hometown and growing up there. Mm-hmm. And it's really sad and tragic and 
whatever, but yeah. it's also really pretty. And the album art, I will show you. Yes. It's giving me Stranger Things vibes. And okay. I kind of, like, it's not what I expected. And I also realised, as an aside, how much music Stranger Things has influenced that I listen to. Yeah. I feel like I've listened to loads of music that's been influenced by Stranger Things. Yeah. Um, Even just to, like, very synthy sounding vibes. I mm-hmm. feel like there's so many songs I can... Like, Ingrid Michaelson had a whole album called Stranger Things. Mm. Uh, no, Stranger Songs. Something like mm. that. Uh, it was based on Stranger Things. But, like, look. Oh, yeah. Oh, it's the font. The font and the bikes <laughs> and stuff like that. Yeah. So, yeah, that's the that's the aesthetic. But, anyway. Northsiders is this lovely wee ballad about childhood friendship growing into adulthood. And I'm going to read the whole thing's verses because it's very short. Okay. And it's a nice story. So, strap in. (laughs) I was new in town, kinda goth. I met you in the science quad. You asked if I had any pot. We're going up to Mikey's spot. Covering important ground. Tried coke at my cousin's house. Yeah, I'm probably addicted now. Things that children lie about. Didn't notice it was getting late. You offered me a place to stay. We live up in the Palisades. Tell your folks you ran away. Besides, you're a Northsider now. Nothing's gonna change it, pal. We were so pretentious then. Didn't trust the government. Said that we were communists and thought that we invented it. Morrissey apologists, amateur psychologists, serial monogamists, we went to different colleges. You said that we would always be branches on the same old tree, reaching away from each other for eternity. And you know I can't argue with that. Nothing's gonna change it now. We could have had a last hurrah when I was working in the smoothie shop, but I couldn't get the weekend off. She told me I was getting soft. I read an article about the accident, probably reaching for her cigarettes, and missed the brake lights up ahead. I hope it was an instant death. Sometimes I imagine us way down the line, getting fat somewhere in the countryside. It's crazy how things shake out sometimes. Maybe that's enough magic for me. Nothing's going to change it now. Oh, that went from so funny to so sad. I know. And that's why I love it. <laughs> I love the, like, Morrissey apologist, amateur psychologist yeah, bit. Yeah, like that bit. And then literally, like, two verses later, it's like, oh, she's dead. Oh. So, I'm sorry to bum everyone out, <laughs> but I also feel like our audience will enjoy that narrative. Yeah, I mean, it sounds like a song I would like, too. Yeah, so. I think you would enjoy it. It's very, it reminded me of Looking for Alaska. Mm. Like in a vague way, but mm-hmm. yeah, <laughs> in a vague way. In a vague way, it reminded me of that. <laughs> I don't know if anyone's ever read that book, but Rebecca's told you the plot. <laughs> <laughs> I feel like it's been out long enough that people should know. There's a TV show of it now, so that is true. Actually, I forgot there's a show. So yeah. if you don't know the plot, that's the plot. <laughs> have a root <laughs> yes i do my god this is a long episode but this is a short but sweet root yeah. so i thought i'd find out the etymology of the word opal since i oh. read it so many times nice and it's the first time i've come across a root on here which wasn't greek or latin nice so that's exciting opal comes from the sanskrit word opala which literally just means a precious stone but that then influenced latin opalus which means to see a color change 
Mm. Which obviously when we think about the racial overtones and the fixation of colour in polychrome makes Opal's name quite a telling thing. Yeah. And then I decided to go one step further and look at what Opals mean in the gemstone community. And Opals represent amplification, hope and purity. Which I feel like when you read Opal and Nev, amplification is such a specific vibe because so much of Opal's character is her trying to, like, make herself bigger. Mm. So, yeah, this feels a bit like the curtains are blue. Like, maybe the author didn't mean for all of that to coincide, but I like that it does. Well, I always think even if it, even if that's not what the author intended, like, it's just, like, a weird twist of fate. That, yeah, it's cool. Like, <laughs> that, do you know what I mean? Yeah, I agree. So, that's my route. Well, my insight... Is also about a gemstones because we just have a weird mind melding thing. Yeah, clearly, we don't talk about. I feel like we should say we don't discuss our scripts before our notes before we come on here. No, I think the only time we've ever done that is with the Starless Sea episode. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah. So basically, I th- this isn't related to a marvelous light at all. I just was have been thinking about this week, but basically, friend of the podcast Stephanie has been on a one-woman mission to get a certain crystal <laughs> into everyone's hands. Okay. Um, I've bought it. She's influenced at least three other people to buy it too. So I thought I'd just share it on here and maybe <laughs> even more people will get one and she'll be buzzing about what it. What is it? I'm intrigued. It is Rainbow Moonstone. I should have brought mine through for my room to show you. Um, So basically, Moonstone's like an iridescent white colour. Mm-hmm. Kind of like an opal, actually. Sort of. But Rainbow Moonstone has, like, flecks of colour through it. So mm. the one I have has flecks of, like, black through it. Apparently the Romans believed that Moonstone was born from solidified rays of the moon. Um, and the Greeks and the Romans associated Moonstone with, like, their lunar gods as well. And I thought I would read out a description of what the crystal is supposed to, like, bring you. Okay. So Moonstone's often called the Visionary's Stone. It helps us see things more clearly. Rainbow Moonstone is thought to bring balance, harmony and hope while enhancing creativity, compassion, endurance and inner confidence. Rainbow Moonstone is believed to help strengthen intuition and psychic perception, especially offering us visions of things that aren't immediately obvious. Because it helps us avoid tunnel vision, we're able to see other possibilities. It's like a flash of inspiration that comes when we are open and quiet. When we wear rainbow moonstone, life-changing inspirations can happen more and more often. Aww. So basically, Steph bought this, and I won't tell you her whole life story, because that's not my place to say, but a bunch of opportunities sprung (laughs) up on her immediately after this crystal arrived. So she was like, that's crazy, like, and told all these people to get it to, and, like, someone she had by it got, like, offered, like, a like a job someone got offered like a sort of like career highlight Mm. like thing like Steph got offered a bunch of things I got offered a promotion at work the day mine arrived I hadn't told you that yet what Um, (laughs) how have I not told you because I just got asked to be a team leader and I was like nah oh okay but (laughs) but like it was literally like I'm not even joking five minutes after because you handed my post to me yesterday Yesterday? Day before? I've lost track of the days. Whenever you handed me the package that had the crystals in it five minutes later, I got asked if I wanted to (laughs) 
be a team leader at work. That's crazy. Isn't that mad? So who knows, man? Maybe it is all real. <laughs> like, <laughs> I take the whole crystal thing with a pinch of salt, but Steph was being so pushy and it was two ninety nine. Yeah. So I was like, fine, I'll buy it. <laughs> and I'm like, huh, maybe it is real. <laughs> maybe it's not real and maybe Steph is actually magic. <laughs> maybe. And she just didn't want, maybe she tried to be slick. Maybe. And be like, if I get her to buy a crystal, she'll think that's what was magic. But I'm just <laughs> going to enchant her life. <laughs> yeah, so, yeah, obviously, like, who knows if crystals are real. My mindset is, like, even if it doesn't work, even if it's a placebo, like, they're still pretty. So yeah. I don't care having pretty things in my room. I was jealous so... when I saw that you got new shiny rocks. Yeah. And I was like, where was I when the shopping was happening? <laughs> I'll have to show you the Etsy page because... I spent hours on there. There's Aww. so many. I know, I have a little shrine now on my windowsill that I didn't even mean to have. Yeah. But I just have acquired so many little yeah. pretty shinies. Well, I was I was saying this to Steph when she was telling me about them. Like, I've bought one crystal in my life and it wasn't that I bought it for a reason. I just saw it and it was pretty and I was like, I'm going to get that. But, like, other people have bought me them. Like, you've bought mm. me a couple and, like... I don't know how, like, I just seem to have acquired a bunch, but I don't know what any of them mean. But this is the first one that I've bought with, like, an intention of, like, yeah. knowing what it is. I'm like, And I bought another couple with it as well, obviously. I've <laughs> so bought I got... myself rose quartz because it was pretty, like, because yeah. that tracks for me. And I think I bought myself a chunk of amethyst because I thought it was pretty. Yeah. But other than that, yeah, it's people have either given them to me or they've come in candles. Yeah, I've got one in a candle as well that I've not lit yet. Hmm. Um, but yeah so there you go just a little crystal fun fact if you want some opportunities or some like you know your mind opened a bit or some inspiration or creativity get a rainbow minstone <laughs> apparently it's magic <laughs> so that is us this week if you have any comments or questions our email is infatuatedpodcast at outlook.com we also have social media, which is linked in the show notes, along with everything we've talked about today, including the Infatuated Mix, which has all the music we mention. And please rate and review us on your podcast apps, because that helps get it out there. Yay! <laughs> I second this. <laughs> Goodbye! Bye! <laughs>《Robin》said Edwin finally. I dragged you out to the countryside where you have been shot. <laughs> Sorry, I forgot how funny this is. Where you have been shot. <laughs> <laughs> oh, it, was be- it, it was a beastly bother at first that got me, and I was like, hold it together. <laughs> <laughs>
where you've been shot, magically drugged. <laughs> Company, this and we could just put up that like <laughs> rainbow screen. I know. Oh. <laughs> <We're good. laughs> oh no! to not uh-huh. why don't you try reading it in your head first well I'll stick that on the end of the episode <laughs> <laughs> <clears throat> I'm going to start that with the whole paragraph again yeah. I think right Robin said Edwin finally <laughs> I, dra- I dragged you out to the countryside <laughs> where you <laughs> I can't <laughs> do it and if I'm still just laughing a bit it's just gonna yeah just okay. go for it <laughs> you've been shot magically drugged set upon by one <laughs> I'm gonna go for magically drugged tonight. <laughs> I'm gonna slowly make it down the yeah the list down the list Magically drugged, (laughs) set upon by wildlife, half drowned, endured an escalating amount of pain from a curse that I can't remove. I can't. (laughs) I can't do it. Yes, you can. (gasps) Come on, you can. (laughs) 